Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the great privilege we have to hear it, Lord. And as, uh, as Robert was praying, I, I was reminded that you have provided for us so amazingly in your word and how quickly we move away from it, how quickly we forget the riches that are just at our fingertips. Lord, help us. Help us to come to you always. And so this morning, Father, as we look at this passage, I pray that I would preach what's in your word. I pray that everyone who you have brought here this morning would listen and apply your word in their own lives. They would be challenged. They would be strengthened. They would be convicted. They might be broken down if they need to be. Lord, please work in your word this morning. Amen. So turn, if you would, in your Bibles to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, this morning we're going to look at verses 35 through 59. 35 through 59. We're continuing on. We're still talking this week about how the Jews are being so earthly-minded here that they can't understand who Jesus is, why he's here, what he's doing. More importantly, they can't understand what their own Father God has been planning. They are so earthly-minded that there are no heavenly good in the situation. They can't see beyond their own desires. They can't see beyond their own wants. They can't see beyond what they think the Savior ought to be for them. You know, there is a, a, a as we've read here in John, really beginning in chapter 5, it, it was happening before, but we especially see it when he comes back from uh, Samaria and, and he's trying to engage with the Jews, there is just a massive misunderstanding that's been taking place. You, know, you just imagine, you have people who have lived with God's word for centuries. They have built their lives, they've built their nation around the claim that they know God, that they love him, that they're his people. That's their fundamental identity. And most importantly, they understand, they would say, what he wants. And now Jesus is coming along and we're discovering that's not true. That's not true. There, there's apparently a massive disconnect between God's people and God because God has shown up on the scene and he's pointing it out. So, of course, what I want to do here at the beginning is I want to point out that in Israel at the time of Jesus, you actually have a number of different Jewish groups and each one of them was earthly-minded in their own way. So I want to run through them real quick. You had the Pharisees and their followers, and they're probably the best known out of, out of all of the groups. The Pharisees are probably the best known. They demanded obedience to the law. But also, they demanded obedience to the oral interpretations of the law that had been created on top of it. And they believed that a Jew could become righteous by their own works, and that they could bring themselves into a right relationship with God through their own works. And that's a form of being earthly-minded, isn't it? You're focusing on yourself and your ability to do what God has required, your ability to be enough, your ability to do. And that's the Pharisees. The Pharisees, they believed that God had given them commands, and they were able in themselves to become righteous by keeping those commands. And so they had built up an entire legal system around the first five books of the Old Testament. That's a form of earthly mindedness. So you have the Pharisees. But then secondly, you have the Sadducees. Sometimes we can lump the Sadducees and the Pharisees in together as if the two groups were pretty much the same. Because when we're talking, we're like, and Jesus engaged with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But they actually weren't at all the same. If the Pharisees were the scholars, if they were the lawyers of, of the Jewish world, the Sadducees were the aristocrats. So the Holman Bible Dictionary, which is my favorite Bible dictionary, calls the Sadducees the party of the wealthy and of the high priestly families. The wealthy and the high priestly families. So they actually disagreed with the Pharisees that you were supposed to obey the oral interpretations of the law. They, they, they didn't agree that the oral interpretations had authority over your life. Also, surprisingly, generally, many of them didn't believe in life after death. They were a political group of aristocrats concerned with Rome and with their wealth. So they were earthly-minded in a materialistic way. They were concerned with their status, with their family, with their, who they were, 
So those are the, those are the two biggest groups. You see one's earthly-minded in, in, in a self-righteous way, and you see the other's earthly-minded in a materialistic way, but there's a few more. There were the Herodians. They were the Jews who supported Herod, and they worked to cement the political dynasty of Herod's family. So again, there you can see their earthly-mindedness. It's, it's in a political focus. They wanted to cement who Herod was in this situation. There were the zealots. The zealots were also a, a very political group in the Jewish world. They fought literally because God was the only one who should have the right to rule the Jews. So they organized revolts. They organized riots. If you, if you went even further than them, you would, you would run into this group called the, I'm, I'm going to mispronounce it because I don't know for sure, but Sicarii. They were revolutionaries against Rome. They were actually assassins focused on Roman government officials. So if you look, if you look at the, the different Jewish groups that were, were around during the time of Jesus, they're all earthly-minded in their own way. You, you have religious Jews that focus on their ability to become righteous. You have Jews that focus on their wealth and status. You have a lot of Jews who are focused on different aspects of the political situation with Rome or the political situation within the Jewish world. That's on everybody's mind almost during this time. Each one of these groups, in other words, they have already decided what they need in order to survive. If you think about it, they have already decided who their savior should look like, what he should be. And into that mix walks Jesus. Jesus is the emissary directly from the God of the Jews. I mean, more than just an emissary, more than just a prophet, this is God's own son. This is the word become flesh. This is the eternal son of God walking into the midst of all of these different Jewish groups. And today, Jesus tells them that he also came because he is what they need. He is their savior. You and I and the Jews, we don't get to determine what our savior looks like. Jesus is our savior. So today, he tells them that he came because he's what they need. They needed manna to live and survive when God brought them out of Egypt. But more than that manna, they need Jesus. They need to be heavenly minded instead of earthly minded. And they need to be heavenly minded in God's way, which is all about Jesus. So let's read our passage today, beginning in verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said... Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed amongst themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. 
Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Okay, so let's walk through that. There is an outline in your bulletin. Um, it's, it's a little more detailed this week than normal because we're covering a good bit of space here. But I want to ask a question today as we look at this passage, tying in with everything we've been talking about in the, in the recent weeks. The question is this. How do we live in a heavenly-minded way? How do we live in a heavenly-minded way here on earth? Here on earth where we have so many earthly things that we have to consider and work through. How do we live in a heavenly-minded way? I've got three answers for you today, breaking down in this passage. First this morning, how do we live in a heavenly-minded way? Trust His plan. Trust His plan. We see this in verses 35 through 40. 35 through 40, Jesus told them back in in verse 26. He said back in verse 26 that they were seeking him for the wrong reasons. They were seeking him for an earthly reason. They had followed him across the Sea of Galilee. They'd come to catch up with him. And Jesus said, that's just because you you had gotten your fill of the loaves. And you wanted more. In other words, they were a lot like the earlier Israelites, the earlier Israelites who had gotten the manna. And they were thankful for the manna initially when they got it. But then what did they do? After a while, they started grumbling. They started complaining again. They started complaining of God's gifts. So what is Jesus doing here? In verses 35 through 40, he's extending an amazing invitation. He says to them, he is the bread of life. Whoever comes to him shall not hunger. Whoever believes in him is never going to thirst. But they don't believe. And why not? Honestly, I think the answer to that, the reason they don't believe him, it's the same problem that the earlier Israelites had as well. They didn't trust God. They didn't trust God's plan. If you were to go this afternoon, I encourage you to do it. Go read in Exodus chapter 16. The story of the manna. And the story, it's it's not a smooth story. Most of the Old Testament stories involving the Israelites are not smooth stories, are they? They just make it all difficult. So do we. It's not a smooth story at all, mainly because the Jews would not listen to God's clear commands. He said, get your bread for today. Don't save any for tomorrow. And you know what a lot of people did? They said, well, you know what? I'm just going to save some for tomorrow. And what happened? They wake up tomorrow. It's rotten. It's disgusting. It's terrible. They just wouldn't listen to God. They, they wouldn't trust him. He said, no, take what you need today. I will provide for you tomorrow. If you think about that, isn't that mindset a huge part of our lives? Trust God today. Obey Him today. He knows what tomorrow will bring. He's ready for it. You see, God knew, as He was telling them, God knew that tomorrow He was going to provide manna for them again. There was no doubt about it. But many of them didn't trust Him And so they hoarded some back. They don't trust his plan. When God told them how to handle it for the Sabbath, guess what? Many of them didn't. They did not follow his plan. So 
God fed these Jews that God himself led out of Egypt. I mean, if you read the story of the Exodus, the story of the Exodus has to be God led them out of Egypt. There's no other explanation for the events that happened. And so he had a clear plan. By his power, God brought them out, and by his power, he kept them alive. He told them, I'm going to do this because I made promises to Abraham, and I'm going to keep them. And here, with that story, we're talking about an earthly level, aren't we? We're talking about an earthly-minded thing. They're eating today. They need food today. But even then, they struggled to trust his plan. Here, in John, Jesus is telling them to realize your need is greater than physical food. Your need is so much greater than what meal you're going to eat today or what meal you're going to eat tomorrow. You don't even understand how great your need actually is. If they are going to survive, if they're going to truly live, then once again, God is the one who must provide. And Jesus is standing there telling them, he has provided for you guys through me. It must be God's plan that will save them, which should be obvious. It should be obvious if you read the Old Testament. It should be obvious if you read the New Testament. It should be obvious in our own lives, in our own experience. How many times have we not trusted God and yet God has provided for us? God has brought us through. You're all here today because God has brought you to this day. But man's inability to trust God's plan has been our greatest failure. Here's God's plan laid out in verses 37 through 40. One, the plan God has is a people that God chooses. You want to know what God's plan is for this world? One, it is a people that God chooses. Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. You see, this has always been a part of God's plan. Just look at Israel. What was Israel? They were a tiny nation chosen out of the world to be God's people, a people for his own possession. So God's plan has always been to create a people that are his. Two, that those people will live. They will truly live. They they will live in a way that goes beyond your 80 to 100 years here on earth. These people will live in the way that God meant for them to live eternally. Again, we're talking here about God's plan, not our plan. So often all we can think about are our 80 to 100 years here on earth. That's not God's plan, though. And the sooner that we realize that, the better for us. God's plan goes beyond this life. We're talking about what he is doing. Jesus says, I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. There is a day coming that is beyond our understanding of this world and of life. There is more to this life than we can see. There's more to this life than we can understand. There is more than their small-minded, temporary dreams of Herod's political power, of overthrowing Rome. I mean, that seems like a pretty big dream, doesn't it? If you're you're Israel during these days, I don't think you could dream bigger on an earthly level. than overthrowing Rome, but that's not God's plan, and compared to God's plan, that's small potatoes. That's nothing. God's plan is that his people will live. They will truly live. His plan is to overthrow death itself. That's his plan. But they can't see it because they're so earthly-minded. As readers of John's gospel, we don't have that excuse. We, we, we must see. Jesus has made it as clear as he possibly can to you. 
God's plan is about eternal life. It's about an eternal kingdom. It's about his people. It always has been. He hasn't hidden his plan. The third thing about God's plan, though, is this. God's plan is to glorify Jesus through the lives of those that the Father gives to him. God's plan is to glorify Jesus. You see, we can tend to think that God's plan is is really about us. Because, I mean, everything's about us, right? We we can't help but be the center of our own universe. We, We put ourselves out there. We put ourselves up as the most important thing in our lives. But one of the things that you need to hear from the Lord in his word, it goes against the grain of everything that that we naturally think, and it goes against the grain of everything our culture tells us. You are not the most important thing about your life. And God's plan is not just about you or me. We are a central part of it, but we are not the central piece of this plan. God's plan is just not simply about us, and God's plan is about Jesus. Jesus says, for this is the will of the Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. You see, God's plan is about glorifying himself through Jesus. He hasn't hidden that either, by the way. It has always been his plan. Jesus is more than just the manna that you and I need to get eternal life. Jesus is not just the tool or not just the product or not just the thing that was there for us to use to get to God. Somehow, that's what he has become for so many of us, though, isn't it? Jesus is really just there for for you to get to God. But that's not God's plan. Jesus does not exist so that you and I can be glorified. We exist so that he can be glorified. That's a thought to think on today. He does not exist for you to be glorified. You exist for him to be glorified. What would that do to our heavenly-minded thinking? That you exist. Whether you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, you do all to the glory of God. We exist for his glory. Paul talks about this in Ephesians. Paul in Ephesians chapter one says that God is making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things on heaven and things on earth. So let's reorient what we're talking about when we're talking about God's plan. It's about Jesus. It's about God's people, the people that he's making for his own possession. You and I have the amazing blessing through his mercy, through his grace, through his generosity, through his love, through his compassion to be a part of that plan. And that... He's not hiding it. It's not hard to understand. It can be hard to accept, though, can't it? There's a reason why he he talks about dying to yourself when he talks about the gospel. It can be hard for us to accept that that Jesus is actually the center of of God's plan, that, that his plan goes so far beyond the things that are so incredibly important to us right now. But man, it is good for you to do that. It is good for us to be reminded 
that our lives are just a fleeting moment. Only the things that are done in Christ are going to last beyond this life. It's hard to accept. God giving hungry Israelites bread to eat so that they would live out in the wilderness, that's not hard to understand. They got to eat every day in order to be alive the next day. But it turns out it was hard for them to accept. It's not hard to understand that you will die and your only hope is going to be to be in Christ Jesus. It's not hard to understand that there was a creator who made this world. It's not hard to understand that a creator made this world, he perfectly designed this world, and it's his, and he has rights over it. It's really not that hard to understand that a creator who made this world, designed it, has rights over it, would also judge this world and have the right to do that. It's his world. It's not difficult to understand that that creator could make a people for himself and he could look down and he could decide, I am going to make a way for these people to escape the judgment that they rightly deserve. None of those things are hard to understand, but they can be very hard to accept. Jesus is here talking to these Jews and they don't see it. Are you having trouble accepting God's plan today? How do you live in a heavenly-minded way? Trust God's plan. Keep it in the forefront of your mind. Understand what God is doing in this world. Understand what part you play as his child, as one of those people. So that's the first thing. Trust his plan. It's his. It's the one plan that is going to work out in this world. Second this morning, live in a heavenly-minded way, trust his power. Trust his power. So the Jews, they say, who is this guy? I mean, this is Jesus, right? This is the son of Joseph. I, I mean, we know his parents. I had dinner with him the other, the other day. I mean, they're, this is Jesus. He didn't come down from heaven. He came from over there. I mean, wasn't he born in Bethlehem? Didn't take a trip down to, to Egypt? I remember his parents talking about going down to Egypt, and you know, then they, they came up. He didn't come from heaven. What is he talking about? This is a perfect example of the problem of earthly-mindedness. When it, when it comes to God all the evidence is being put right in front of their face. There has to be something about this Jesus. Yeah, he was born in Bethlehem. He did go down to Egypt. He came up to Nazareth. I, I get all that. But um, have you seen the things he's been doing? Have you, have you seen the, the, the signs that he's been putting out? And of course, the answer is, yes, they've seen him, but we said this last week, they didn't get the signs. They didn't understand that the signs were pointing to God's plan here. They were happy they got fed, but they didn't see that, hey, this guy was able to feed like thousands upon thousands from basically no food at all. So there's got to be something more about him than that he came from Bethlehem. But the problem is when we think about God's power, so often our imaginations are too small. We don't understand who it is that we are talking about. And so what Jesus does in this next section here as he delivers a stinging indictment. He says, don't grumble among yourselves. Why? Why should they not grumble among themselves? Because no one can come to the Father unless the Father who sent me draws him. And then Jesus references the Old Testament. They must be taught by God. And then he says it again, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Do you see what he's telling the Jews here? In other words, he is saying, you don't actually know the Father. The Pharisees don't know him, even though they built their whole lives around claiming that they know the Father better than anyone. But they don't because they think that their power can bring them, that their righteousness can bring them to the Father. He's saying, you don't know him. The Sadducees, they don't know the Father either. 
It doesn't matter what family they were born into. It doesn't matter who their parents are. It doesn't matter how much money they have accumulated and how much social influence they have. Their status, their money, it's just, it's not enough. The politically minded Jews, who all they can think about is either Herod or Rome, they certainly don't know God. This is what Jesus is telling them. Don't grumble among yourselves. No one can come to the Father unless the Father who sent me draws him. In other words, if you're not seeing this, you don't know the Father. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. If you're not coming to Jesus as the Messiah, then you have not actually heard and learned from the Father. This is an indictment. And why don't they know the Father? Because they are earthly minded. Because they are relying on their own power. They're thinking there is something about them. There's something about their ability. There is something about their status. There's something about their their money. There's something about whatever that can bring God's attention on them. But that's not how it works. This is all God's plan. They aren't in a position to judge God's plan. You and I aren't in a position to judge God's plan. No one, Jesus is saying here that no one can actually come to the Father on their own power. So what does that mean for us if we want to live heavenly-mindedly? To live in a heavenly-minded way is first and foremost, be humble. Be humble. To truly realize the immensity of God's power, what he has said that he is doing in this world. And then to accept our own frailty in the face of this world and to accept our own frailty in the face of the Father. Everything that the heavenly-minded person does, he or she does with the knowledge that God is powerful enough to work and we must rely on Him. Everything you do, you must rely on God. After all, God has said that He opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. If you were to read in Luke chapter 18, Luke tells a parable there that that Jesus told. I'm not going to read the parable, but I want to read how how Luke started this story in Luke 18. Luke says, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. To some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Righteous. To live in a heavenly-minded way is not to trust in yourself that you are righteous. The Bible has said no one's righteous, no, not one. God made us the first time. God makes us the second time, too. And he sustains us. The heavenly-minded person, you see, the heavenly-minded person knows they can live a holy life. God has said, be holy as I am holy. Through Peter, he spoke that to the New Testament church. The heavenly-minded person knows we can actually live a holy life. You can put off the old man and you can put on Christ. You can defeat the sins that are waging war within your soul. The sins that you are enslaved to, you can actually have hope to put those things to death. To leave those things behind you. That is possible. But it's only possible through God's power. It's only possible through God's working. It's not possible on our own power. Some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, guess what? They actually weren't. Spoiler alert. 
according to Jesus. And remember, don't ever forget, Jesus' judgment is the only one that really matters there. He is the judge. If Jesus says you're not righteous, then guess what? You're not righteous. It's God's power that can make you righteous. It's his plan, and guess what? It's his power. He can bring it to pass. There's so much encouragement here. I want you guys to see that this morning. This is convicting. It's hard, but I want you to see the encouragement that's in here too. Because I may not know your heart, but I know my heart. And there are things in our hearts that make us hopeless. We can try as hard as we possibly can and we're gonna fail again and again. But if it's God's plan, it's gonna be God's power that brings us to him. This is why we believe in grace. This is why we believe in mercy. Because God in his power has made a way for us to receive grace for our sins, mercy for our sins. You can put off the old man and put on the new man in Christ Jesus. But the only way you're going to do that is to live heavenly minded every day, trusting in his plan, relying on his power. The point that Jesus is making here in John 6 is that these people do not realize they must trust God's power. And if you're going to trust God's power, that means the plan's gonna work his way. You see, we wanna use our power sometimes to do the things we think are best. But God has a plan. He is at work. So trust his plan and then trust his power. Lastly, this morning, trust God's provision. Trust his plan, trust his power, trust his provision. The Jews ask an obvious question. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? I mean, ew, right? Ugh. When you really think about it, I mean, at first, at first glance, that, that's gotta be weird, icky, I don't know. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Then Jesus says, for my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. So, I said this last week, and I think it's still true. We could possibly forgive these Jews for not understanding what Jesus is saying here. I mean, after all, his own disciples didn't understand exactly what Jesus was doing until much later in the story. So we could forgive them if they don't fully understand what he's saying here. Kind of in the same way, we could almost forgive them for not fully understanding what he's saying about the temple although what they should have understood in both situations is that Jesus was coming to do what the temple couldn't do. The temple couldn't actually eternally bring you into the presence of God, but Jesus can. And he's coming to do what the manna couldn't eternally do. They should have understood that just as God only provided the manna, only through Jesus will God provide what these people need. I mean, God didn't provide them salads. He didn't provide salads, manna, and then, oh, hey, here's a dessert course as well to throw in there. He gave them only the manna. That was it every day. The one thing that they must eat in order to survive. He could have given them a lot more, but he didn't. Only through Jesus. They could have understood this. Only through Jesus is God going to provide eternal life. No other way. 
No other power, no other anything, only through Jesus. But like I said, we could almost forgive them for not fully grasping it. But even, even if they, the people in the story today, even if they didn't understand, we, as John's readers, we don't get that excuse, do we? We don't get that excuse. You see, we know exactly what Jesus is talking about here. We know exactly what he meant by saying that we must feed on his body and that we must drink his blood. How did God provide this true food? How did God provide this true drink? The bread and the water that feeds us beyond just this life. How did God provide for that? Through Jesus' death. Through his sacrifice. We know that. The central core foundation of the heavenly mind is that Jesus provided our way to live forever through his death and his resurrection. That's God's plan brought about by his power and it was to provide eternal life as his child through the sacrifice of Jesus. Because I would encourage you, every time that God provides for you in wonderful earthly ways, there's a temptation there. I think Robert referenced it earlier when he was praying. There's a temptation there when God provides for us in earthly ways that we tend to actually forget about God. If you were to read and, and, and you were to continue on into Deuteronomy chapter 9, that's the indictment that God actually brings through Moses to the people that they, they're going to claim that they got the promised land by their own power. That's going to happen. And Moses says, don't let that happen. You never got the promised land by your own power. We do the same thing, don't we? God provides for us in, in earthly ways, and, and, and we tend to actually forget about God. I think this is one of the reasons why God brings suffering to his children so often. Suffering is terrible in this fallen world, but there is a kindness in it sometimes. It leaves you realizing that you can only trust in Jesus ultimately. So if God has provided for you in a wonderful way, don't fall for the temptation of forgetting about God. Instead, remember that even the greatest material provision that God could give you today I'm sure you have it. I'm sure you've daydreamed about, you know, whatever. It's like I'd wake up this morning and I'd have this or that or whatever. If, if that were to happen, it could not compare. It could not come close to comparing to what God has provided through Jesus Christ on the cross. The life that he's given on the cross the life beyond this. Because you see, it's through Christ dying as a sacrifice on the cross that we get to become part of God's plan by his power. We celebrated last week at the end of the service. We went into the cafeteria and we ate bread and we drank grape juice to celebrate as we did that that we have been provided for in the one thing that we desperately need. Hope in the face of death and condemnation. Hope in the face of our own sin. Just this morning we read that beautiful answer to the question, what is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. He makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. 
How do we live in a heavenly-minded way? We trust God's plan. We trust God's power. We trust God's provision. All three of those things find their focus in Jesus Christ. For us, there is no other name under heaven. The heavenly-minded person doesn't argue against God's plan. The heavenly-minded person doesn't say, no, God, I think this plan would be a better plan than your plan. I want this to happen now. Instead, he joyfully realizes and accepts that God's plan is to make a people for himself through Jesus Christ. That plan won't be fulfilled until Jesus returns. So you and I, we have to be an active part of that plan today. The heavenly-minded person is humble. They rely on God's power. The heavenly-minded person knows truly what our greatest need is. The heavenly-minded person feels their greatest need every morning when they wake up and God's mercies are new. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Colossians 3. And let's end today. Colossians 3, I think, is Paul's sermon to the heavenly-minded person. So if you would, go ahead and turn there. This is Paul's sermon to the one who is trusting God's plan, trusting God's power, and trusting God's provision through Jesus Christ. And he's going to say it right from the very beginning. So if you would, follow along with me as I read and finish up today by reading Paul's sermon here to the heavenly-minded. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of those, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, Humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. You see how heavenly mindedness directs your earthly actions. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, Peter, uh, Paul doesn't stop there, though. He goes ahead and he gets a little more specific on what the heavenly-minded life looks like for particular people. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, 
Obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. By the way, that phrase there, there is no partiality, that, that, that's, meant, that's meant to be a warning. God doesn't care whether they were a master in this life. He doesn't care how much power and influence they had in this life. That's not going to impact when he judges. He's going to judge perfectly justly. He's not going to be partial. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Continue steadfastly in prayer, watchful, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. This is the heavenly-minded life right here. And it all depends on trusting God's plan, trusting his power, and trusting his provision through Jesus Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, we thank you so much for your love for us. Lord, we long to be with you. We're about to sing about how there's a day coming when we are going to feast in the house of Zion. In the midst of this world, we long for that day, Father. I pray that each person here would see that you intend to bring your people to that day. Through everything that we're going through right now, you intend to bring your people to that day. But your people only come to that day through Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that Jesus Christ becomes everything in our life. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you. You did not have to come down to earth. You are our king. You deserve to be our king no matter what. We owe you our allegiance. We thank you that you were willing to come down to make a way for us to feast in the house of Zion. We praise you as our king. We want to live for you as our king. We want to obey you. I pray for our wives to obey you. I pray for our husbands to obey you. I pray for our children to obey you, for our fathers. Father, I, I pray for all of us that we would rightly obey those who are in authority over us and thus obey you. Give us strength, Lord, to live in a heavenly-minded way because of what you have done. We pray this, Father, we pray this in Christ's name to your glory. Amen.